Today, the name Solomon is almost synonymous with wisdom. In fact, Solomon was named by God as the wisest who came before him or after. But he was more than just wise. Solomon was a prophet of God, and he was the strongest king Israel would ever know. In addition, Solomon was the one chosen to carry on the Davidic covenant and the Lord's anointed. Why then do we today speak of Solomon in the same terms as we speak of David, as a man fallen from greatness? We'll discuss this question and others in today's podcast number 26, King Solomon, Man of Wisdom, Man of Foolishness. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you for joining us. It's wonderful to be recording again today. This is my second lesson of the day, or at least uh, the second that will be released today, uh, because I fell a little bit behind. What can I say? It's summertime, but I'm grateful to be back. And uh, today's lesson is probably one of the one of the most poignant. Uh, obviously, we talked about David and what a tragedy that was, and. It wasn't because David was as strong as Solomon. It was because David was so holy. But King Solomon was uh, very close behind. And uh, Solomon ascended the throne in the, amid all of the intrigue that plagued David in the later, latter part of his life. So Solomon, the way Solomon ascended the throne was uh, one of David's son, Adonijah, was, was claiming that the kingship should rightfully go to him. And he was older than Solomon. And this is where we learned, before this we didn't know, that Solomon had been chosen by the Lord. And uh, so the prophet Nathan finds out that, that uh, Adonijah is out in the wilderness attracting all of the followers of King David and proclaiming himself king, sort of cementing his rule. And he takes this news to David, and David proclaims Solomon as a co-regent who would basically be the vice king until he died. And... Uh, so in this way, Solomon is seen as somebody who is sort of brought up from nothing. In other words, and he was even the son of Bathsheba. And as we read the as we read the book of Samuel, Second Samuel, and First Kings, we we can kind of see that she was probably David's most favored wife, but she was also the the child of a, an adulterous relation. Or sorry, she he was also the Solomon was also the child of an adulterous relationship, and. Therefore, and not only that, but he was younger than Adonijah. And before that, he had had Amnon and Absalom, who had, all, who had both been killed. We discussed that in an earlier lesson. So Solomon was sort of an underdog at the beginning of his reign, and he actually took the throne at 20 years of age. And this, act, this, this served him really well, this, this humble beginning. Um, you don't think of humility when you think of Solomon, but uh, as, the, as the lesson begins, here we are in 1 Kings 3, verse 4. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. And this is where uh, David had established the altar of God before the temple was built. So in verse 5 of 1 Kings chapter 3, In Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Thou hast shewed unto thy servant David my father great mercy, 
according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness, that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord, my God, and when it, uh, again, when you see O Lord, it means Yahweh. And now, Yahweh, my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father. And I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this, thy so great a people? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding, to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. I read all this because there are a number of lessons here. Number one, uh, Solomon, first, first of all, God comes to Solomon and says, what would you ask? And I don't think there's any more repeated admonition in all the scriptures than that we have to ask for the blessings that we would receive. And uh, we don't know, I don't, I don't know exactly what occurred in this moment. Did God say, granted, you know, and he waved a magic wand and all of a sudden Solomon was smarter. Or did Solomon, in his wisdom, pre-existing wisdom, recognize that he needed God's help? And God said, I'm, I'm going to bless you with wisdom. I've already blessed you with wisdom, and I'm, and, and I'm going to be with your wisdom. Either way, it was extremely wise of Solomon to ask this question already. So we know that he must have been wise. He was wise to recognize the immensity of the task before him. And he'd, and he'd been humbled by sort of the way he was brought into the throne. Um, and, and so therefore, he knew that he needed God's help. Here's another lesson. Solomon was well aware of the link between righteousness and blessings from God, and how much he depended on God. And uh, we have evidence of that when he says uh, in verse 6, 1 Kings 3, verse 6, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David my father great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. So he knew that, Solomon knew that David's obedience and David's humility, his willingness to repent, was tied to the amount of blessings, to the number of blessings that he received from God. And this is evident right here at the very start. Um, and again, when Solomon asked a blessing, he, he, it, it was almost like a genie. This is, this is, once again, we have a few examples of fables in the scriptures. This is almost like a fable because uh, rarely does God come to anyone and say, I will grant you any wish you want, right? And uh, so Solomon is given a wish from, from a, very, a very familiar figure in the, in the story, which is somebody who can, a supernatural entity that appears and says, what, what would you like? What would you wish for? So he asks for an understanding heart, but he doesn't ask it, even, even that he doesn't ask for himself. He asks very unselfishly to become a tool 
what what Solomon wants is to be an instrument in the hand of God to save to save his children. In other words, he wants to help God in his work, in God's work. Well, God, of course, is going to be pleased about that. Anytime we ask that, God is going to give us, and, and Jesus referred to this uh, among the Nephites. He said, seek not for riches until you have obtained a hope in Christ. And once you've done that, then you can have riches if you seek them. But the reason you'll seek them after that happens is to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked. In other words, you will receive more blessings than you wanted, and you'll receive them because what you, your desire is is to help God in his work. And this was Solomon's desire at the beginning of his reign. In verse 15, we have an interesting, this is just an interesting thing to think about. Here we are, 1 Kings 3.15. Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So, first of all, we had to have, the only way the story could have come down to us is, be, is for, from Solomon telling it to someone. And they had to relate, he would have had to relate this and say, and I had a dream about God. And I, th- I think a lot of times about what the prophets, what the nature of the visions that the prophets in the scriptures have. You know, what was the nature of Lehi receiving his revelation that he had to get out of Jerusalem? It was also a dream. He's on his bed, actually. It describes that uh, Lehi, a lot of the a lot of the times when he was given difficult instruction, it was in a vision at night or in a dream. And I think about what it would take for me to believe a dream to that extent, to where I would uproot my family and go 12,000 miles around the world in the, in the ancient world where you, know, you had to invent means of travel and leave everything behind and endure eight or ten years of privation and have your children in the wilderness and convince other people to go with you, all on the basis of a dream. And here is Solomon giving us another example of that same thing. He, he wakes in the morning, and behold, it's a dream. So this dream revealed, it, obviously, Solomon, it's probably a true dream. It probably really was a vision of God. But Solomon treats it like it's, like it's real. He has faith in this dream. He believes that it's God. And I think... You know, it's interesting that how, how much uh, teaching, how much instruction is being given to the Latter-day Saints these days about personal revelation. And it usually comes, this instruction usually comes in the form of, if you think that the prompting you're getting is from God, well, try it out and see. And it may be, it may not be. And that's how you learn is over time, as you've tried things over and over again, you'll start to learn the difference between your ideas and God's ideas. But anything that is, generally, anything that is pointing you towards Christ is a revelation from God. It's a prompting. And it may not be a revelation of how to build a ship to cross the Indian and Pacific Oceans, but it might be uh, what words to say to your wife to um, ask for forgiveness for something you did, or how to uh, get your children to listen to you rather than to run around screaming. It might be that you, it might be a prompting that you need to repent and you didn't even realize you'd sinned. So obviously anything along those lines is a revelation from God. And do we pay attention to them? How much do we, do we say, wow, I can have faith in this. And every time I read something where, um, 
first of all, I like to ask myself a couple of questions whenever there's a, a revelation related in the scriptures. Number one, how did it come to this prophet? And here we have the exact description. It was in a dream. But if it's not given in the description, then I think, how much faith would it have required? So, for example, the revelation that's given to Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, it's not described the nature of God's appearance to Abraham. The scripture doesn't say God himself appeared, or the voice of God was booming, or his it came in a still small voice. It doesn't say anything. It just said God said to Abraham. So then it's up to us to imagine, well, what did that look like? How much... How forceful of a message did Abraham need in order to change his mind about everything he wanted and to turn his whole world upside down? And then uh, the obvious follow-up question is, how much would I need? And maybe not even to turn my whole world upside down, but to turn the next 10 minutes upside down and listen to something that God wants me to do. So that's an interesting side note. Here we go with Solomon's first, the, the first story of Solomon's wisdom is well known. And these two women, they're called harlots. They they both have given birth within three days of each other. And one has rolled over on her child in the night and killed it. So they, they come with the living child and want, and they're both claiming the baby because the, the mother who killed her, who smothered her own baby, felt so awful about it that she uh, swapped babies with the other woman. So the woman comes before the king. And this is given as the great example of Solomon's wisdom. And after after Solomon resolves this question, then all Israel feared him because they knew the Lord was with him in, in his wisdom. And uh, so it seems, I, I don't know why, but in my reading of this story this time, I, I thought, you know, a lot of people could be this wise. It doesn't seem like this is earth-shattering wisdom, except in the ways that, that we're, that we're going to talk about and that I'll describe. And maybe you'll think I'm wrong. Maybe you'll think my take on this is a little bit silly or it's it's because um, obviously we've all grown up with the story of Solomon uh, threatening to split the baby. But let's, you can, you can write in with your questions. And I didn't mention that as we started, but uh, I'll try to pose some questions without good answers to them. And then you can write in with your opinion to gt at gospeltoctrine.com. I'd love to read those on air. So what does Solomon do? He says, bring me a sword. And obviously this solution depended on these women having no idea what he had in mind. And as such, it was a solution that could only be used one time. Uh, if, If somebody came to him again with a similar problem and he threatened to, he threatened drastic action the suspicion would be there in the minds of his petitioners that maybe he didn't really mean it. So he had to be sure that this would work. And he said, bring me a sword. I'm going to split this baby and we'll give half to each woman. And of course, the woman who loved the child more said, no, of course not. Take the, you know, let the child live. Give it to the other woman. I, I, I know that I said it's my baby, but she can have him if, uh, if, if the alternative is death. And the second woman said, yeah, let's split the baby and give me half. Now, first of all, this the, the fact that Solomon was able to offer the solution he did depended on something very, uh, very odd and very unlikely, which was that the second woman was willing to see a baby killed. So 
obviously Solomon's solution was great. It solved the problem. So it was perfectly suited to the situation. And I'm not saying Solomon wasn't wise. What I'm saying was, this isn't earth-shattering wisdom. This is a pretty out-there situation where a woman was willing to see a baby killed. And maybe that's just because their culture was one where death was more commonplace. And who knows? But uh, so I think the wisdom of Solomon, that what we can what we can deduce about the wisdom of Solomon from this episode in my opinion, just looking at it, trying to read it with fresh eyes, is this. He was able to spot, before he made the threat, he was able to read this this woman's personality to such an extent and guess, this is the kind of woman, she, she seems to be so bitter, I bet you she would let this child die rather than see it go to someone else. And it wasn't an exaggeration. She really was willing to do that. Um... And it, this had to be a difference, a uh, product of the difference in cultures, because I don't think you would ever find this today. But maybe, uh, maybe it's possible. In any case, that's the wisdom of Solomon: is that he was able to read and understand the heart of someone that came in front of him. And we've seen evidence of this in other prophets throughout the scriptures. The one that comes to mind most readily is when Alma can see that Zeezrom, when when Zeezrom says, "Hey, I'll give you all this money if you deny Christ." And Alma says, well, I can tell that, number one, uh, you're never going to give me the money. What you want, you're lying to me right now. You're trying to get me to do it. And not only wouldn't I do it for the money, but you're never going to give it to me anyway. And that's what converted Zeezrom was, was for Alma to read his thoughts. And perhaps there was a little bit of that going on with Solomon. Perhaps God gave him insight into other people's hearts, or perhaps he just really did. That was his particular gift, his wisdom was to read people well. And I think that's, it wasn't, th- it wasn't his brilliant idea that, oh, let's, let's threaten to split this person and obviously the woman whose son it is not will let him die. That isn't an obvious conclusion. And so therefore the wisdom is that he spotted, here we have a really out there woman. She is off the deep end. And she is so jealous and so full of shame for, over having killed her own child that she'd be willing to see another child die out of spite. And she probably, with that much spite and that much bitterness, she was probably trying to hide it. So the fact that he spotted it, that's his wisdom. And the other, the other detail in this story is we actually don't know whether the woman who brought the child in is telling the truth. It seems that she was. And what we do know is that one of the women was willing to let the child die and the other one wasn't. We don't know which one of those women was the natural mother of the child. And the beauty of Solomon's solution was it didn't matter because whoever loved the child more would end up with, ended up with the child, whether it was the natural mother or not. So after this, everyone thinks, oh, Solomon is so wise. And... Um, one thing I didn't mention at the beginning was when David when David was about to die and he turns the throne over to Solomon, he sets his son Solomon up to perform certain acts. Number one, finally the kingdom would be consolidated. Now, when the, remember when the Israelites went into, uh, sorry, not Jerusalem, but into the, the land of greater Israel, 
they actually initially only possessed a very small part of it, and there were tons of other civilizations around. And they were given the charge, unify your, your rule over all these lands and kick everyone else out, and you don't want to leave these people around, and you don't want to intermingle with them, because the, the gods that they worship are terrible gods. And uh, this is true especially of the Ammonites. They worshipped a god who is either called Milko, alternatively called Milko, or Molech, or Moloch. These are, these are different ways that the name has come down to us. But in every case, the, the, the commandment is don't let your children pass through the fire of Molech. And Molech was the, was, is generally today depicted as a big bronze statue that would be heated by fire. And people would be fed to the statue. In other words, they're placed within this burning hot bronze statue. And it's almost like a superheated oven. And people just cooked in there. And whatever it was that people were petitioning God for, they would sacrifice their own children to get it, to, to Molech. So of all of the... And, and there are other gods that, that were there. Baal is one of them, but, but Ashtoreth or uh, Astarte, in alternative pronunciations, is one of them, and she was the fertility goddess. And the, the worship of, of Ashtoreth usually involved sexual orgies or some sort of sexual uh, excess. And this was, so these were, the, these were the kinds of religious practices being indulged in. And so when you see groves and high places, this is, these are worship houses of worship to Baal and to Astarte, and then the the peculiar sin or the peculiar abomination of the Ammonites was Moloch, and that was the worst thing that any Israelite could do, what would be to follow after Moloch. And you can see just how evil this is, how how terrible it would be for every person in Israel, for anyone to follow after these gods. So they'd been given this commandment, and David finally is recognizing we've you and I, Solomon, we're at the we're at the pinnacle of the strength. Well, they didn't know it was the pinnacle, but we are at the peak right now, so far, of the strength of Israel, and our borders are bigger than they've ever been. We've united the lands the Lord promised us, from the Red Sea in the south, all the way up to the Euphrates River in the north, and uh, so Solomon, you have you have rule over all of this, and and guess what? Here's a surprise. It's almost like a, an inheritance. David says, I've been taxing people. I've been levying a special tribute for many years, and I've saved up all these thousands of shekels of gold and silver and precious things for you to put into the temple. So I've always wanted to construct the Lord a permanent dwelling place. And as, as we read, Solomon went to Gibeon to perform his sacrifices. And David felt like that place should be in Jerusalem. To us, that seems obvious, but to them, it was a new idea. And the place they chose was Mount Moriah, which was the traditional spot where Abraham had offered Isaac his son. And it was somewhat above what is called today the city of David. So the Temple Mount, if you were to look at a map or a, a picture of Jerusalem, uh, the Temple Mount is where the, the today stands the Dome of the Rock. And a little bit to the south, then the, the hillside runs downward, and 
that's the city of David, and there are archaeological excavations still going on there. Tons to discover, and a lot of it is made impossible by modern-day dwellings. Hezekiah's Tunnel is there. Um, several national parks, no, I shouldn't say several, there are a few national parks and national monuments that are that are packed really closely together in museums, um, demonstrating and exhibiting the the archaeological riches that exist in the area. And the Pool of Siloam, I mean, things, sites from both Old and New Testament times. And that was where David had lived. He conquered, in his lifetime, the city of Jerusalem, and they decided to build the temple on top of this mountain that was nearby. It was it was the dream of his life. It was his his cherished ambition. And he turned it all over to his son, and then he died. And he said at that time, what David said to Solomon before he died was, Be thou strong. Be strong. This is in First Kings chapter 2, verse, verse 2 and 3. Be strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. Now, if you'll remember, this is similar to the advice that Moses gave to Joshua. Be strong and of a good courage. And the point of the strength wasn't you've got to you've got to be strong in battle. It was be strong whenever resistance comes up to obeying the commandments of God. So here's the here's what David says in First Kings chapter two: Be strong, therefore, show thyself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord thy God to walk in His ways, to keep His statutes and His commandments and His judgments and His testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. And he wasn't so he wasn't just saying keep all the easy commandments. He was saying, learn the entire law of Moses and keep it. And we'll get back to this later. This is where, this is the the fact that Solomon didn't do all of this with exactness was his entire downfall. And he says, uh, do that that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest. Now, another uh, on another occasion, you, if you'll remember, we talked about uh, either last week or a couple of weeks ago, that there are two parallel accounts of what's happening with David and Solomon, the book the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles. So in the in First Chronicles twenty nine, this is the prayer of David as he's getting ready to die. And he he prays in front of everyone. He kind of leads this worship service. And so um first he, he turns over this huge vast wealth that he's amassed for the construction of the temple. And then he prays in verse uh in First Chronicles twenty nine eighteen O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of thy people, and prepare thy heart, and give unto Solomon my son a perfect heart to keep thy commandments, thy testimonies, and thy statutes, and to do all these things, and to build the palace for the which I have made provision. So, give unto my son, give unto Solomon my son a perfect heart. What greater ambition. Now you notice David didn't say, give unto Solomon, my son, an understanding heart so that he can be wise. He said, give unto him a perfect heart to keep the commandments. And that's the that's kind of the difference between what somebody would want for himself. Obviously, Solomon asked for a good thing and that pleased the Lord. But what someone would want for themselves and what a, what a parent would want for their child. Um, we don't, we, we don't realize this I think often enough, or per, or perhaps I think there might be parents out there who never realize it and should, but the things we should want for our children are not, I want my child to be the smartest kid. I want my child to be 
the best athlete. I want my child to be the best looking kid. I want my child to be the most popular kid. If our hearts are in the right place, what we want is our child to be the kindest, the humblest, the one who's best at sharing, the one who forgives the easiest, the one who's the most obedient. This is what parents should want for their children. And it the and consequently it's what we should reward in our children. And this is what David prays for. He can't wish any for anything better than his son that his son would have a perfect heart to obey the commandments. That's a powerful image. Now obviously He's praying for something for someone else. In other words, David is trying to help the the Lord accomplish his work in Solomon's heart. And when Solomon prays for an understanding heart, he's not not doing it for himself. He's also praying that, that he can use that understanding heart to help other people. So it's not that Solomon is doing something wrong. It's just highlighting and contrasting here the differing desires of a parent of the king and the king himself, what, what they would ask. So this is how Solomon begins his reign with this with this task. And David reveals to Solomon that uh, that not only has he been saving up for the construction of the temple, these precious things, and the money to do it, but also the materials. This gold could be used as money to hire workmen or to buy materials, but also it is going to be used extensively directly as a material in the construction of the temple. And Solomon amasses vast amounts more wealth to use in that way as well. But he he reveals not only that he's been saving up for it, but that the the plans of the temple have been divinely given to him by revelation. So he presents him with these plans. And the plans are basically that the temple is going to be double the size, but in the same proportions as the tabernacle. So if you recall, and and, uh, I'm planning to do a special episode on the ancient temple and uh, that is to be announced, the date of that still, but uh, I need to get to it before we get to Isaiah because I have a special episode on Isaiah as well. So, uh, but the, the if you'll remember that the temple, if you've ever learned about the, the ancient tabernacle, there was the outer court and there was an altar out there, but also a brazen, what was called a brazen sea. And uh, then the first room in the temple was called the holy place, and only the priests were allowed there. And in that holy place was commanded a what was called a candlestick, which we would call today a menorah, and a table with shewbread on it, and vessels that held holy water, you know, blessed water. And then before the uh, that, and then to the west, so the table faced east. And if as you went west, you got holier and holier, and uh, you went into the holy place if you were one of the priests, and then. On the other side of that room, so that was a rectangular room, and on the far end from the entrance was a curtain that separated, or in the tab- in the case of the tabernacle, a door that separated the Holy of Holies from the Holy Place. And only one person got to go there, which was the high priest. And only and in that case, that was the, in, in ancient times, that was the only day of the year on which the the only person who was authorized to utter the divine name of Yahweh could say it. So the high priest would say the name and walk, uh, say the name of God and walk into the holy place. In those days, this, in Solomon's temple, uh, right now we're talking a little bit about temple history. So Solomon's temple 
was what is called the first temple. Um, obviously, the first temple of the Old Testament was Moses' temple, but because it was mobile, um, and we're speaking of historical architecture and buildings, Solomon's temple is called by Jews today the first temple, or the first temple period describes the time from the kings, from the construction of this temple in uh, the late 7th century BCE, so 760, uh, it's not exactly apparent what year Solomon began to reign, but in the 760s. And um, we know from Book of Mormon history if, that uh, sometime after 600 years before Christ was when the Babylonians finally conquered Jerusalem. And most people place that at 587 or 586. So for almost 200 years, this, uh, this temple stood, the first temple, and then the Babylonians came and destroyed it. The second temple, then 70 years later, the Jews returned. And they, the scriptures, their culture, all of these things survived. And we have, we have accounts, we'll, we'll study all of these stories later, but we have accounts from when they were in the, in the captivity of the Babylonians and later the Persians. And the stories of Esther and Daniel and Ezekiel and, and so Ezra was the book of Ezra that describes Ezra, how Ezra the, pro the prophet returned to Jerusalem and oversaw the, the reconstruction of the temple. And the, the leader at that time was called Zerubbabel. So that's either called the, the second temple is either called the temple of Zerubbabel or of Ezra. And the second temple is the temple that Herod rebuilt. And that temple was rebuilt a couple of times, actually. Um, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, is this is this time period without too many holy records? Although there are, what are called in in the uh, Protestant churches apocryphal works, but this is part of the Catholic Bible, the Book of the Maccabees, the books of the Maccabees, and the they describe the the Hasmonean rule, which uh, you may remember the um, the story of Hanukkah, which is the the rededication of this second temple. So the Hasmoneans, they actually threw off what had been Alexander the Great's rule. And for a time, Israel once again ruled itself. And this, after the Babylonian captivity, this was a rare thing. And so then they rebuilt the temple and rededicated it. And then Herod, sometime before the birth of Christ, about 30 years, began another great construction effort where he greatly expanded the Temple Mount. And he encased the, the temple of Zerubbabel in this classical architecture shell, which was monumental and about 15 stories tall, if you can imagine, this, this temple being huge. But the internal temple was the same size. So that's the, that's the history of the temple of Jerusalem. It all begins right here with David receiving these plans by revelation, handing them over with some of the materials to Solomon and Solomon constructing the temple. So that's the story that we have for the next few chapters. And it's really interesting because at one point, so here we are in, uh, let's, let's return to 1 Kings chapter 6. And this is where the, the story of the construction of the temple is related. And the first thing that's happened, the first verse describes when it, it's begun. And then the second verse gives the dimensions and I want to draw something to your attention really fast. If you just flip over 
to chapter 7. It, there, these two chapters are put next to each other and constructed the way they are on purpose. So verse 1, it talks about when it's begun and how long it took. And then in chapter 7, and chapter 7 begins with a very interesting word, but. So the entirety of chapter 6 describes the construction of the temple. But Solomon was building his own house. This is chapter 7 now. But Solomon was building his own house 13 years. So he took 7 years to build the temple. Then he took 13 years to build his own house. Solomon was building his own house 13 years and he finished all his house. He built also the house of the forest of Lebanon. So he built it out of cedar, cedar wood from Lebanon. This is the only place in the whole region where they can get monumental trees in order to, in order to get planks to build, to build great structures out of wood. Anyway, it talks about the, the dimensions. So here are the dimensions of the, the tabernacle. It was 30 cubits by 10 cubits, or about 45 feet by 15 feet, by 10 cubits high. The Temple of Solomon is twice as large on either dimension, so four times the, the footprint. And then it's, it's uh, three times as high, so, not even t- so it's 12 times the volume. And so that's the Temple of Solomon. He had increased. <clears throat> and and what, what Solomon, I guess the, the hint here to Solomon's pride was not that he built his own house larger. So, but here are the dimensions of his home. His home is, the, te- the temple is 60 by 20 by 30 cubits high. And Solomon's home is 100 by 50 by 30 cubits high. So it wasn't, the problem wasn't that he built the temple too small. That had been revealed to him by his father David, to whom presumably had been revealed by the Lord. He didn't get to change the dimensions of the temple. But what Solomon did was build his own house larger. Now, did he do it on purpose? Did he say, I'm going to build my house larger to this to these particular dimensions so that it can be larger than the temple? Or did he just think, well, I need all of these functions, all of these rooms, all of this grandeur in my house, and so therefore... The function dictates the size. In any case, he chose the size of his home, and it happened to be larger than the temple. Whether whether pride was the cause of him building his home larger than the temple, or the effect, I live in a home that is bigger than this huge building, the temple. Either way, it did not help Solomon's humility. And we're going to talk about pride and humility, because that is basically the entire point of this lesson. What was the first thing that Solomon did wrong? Well, hard to say, but he started, we know that he started out humble and he prayed to God. He said, I'm, I'm a little child. I don't know the first thing about how to do this. And God gave him wisdom. Now, right away, what does he do? First Kings chapter three, verse one. Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem. In other words, he, uh, and this is before he even prayed for wisdom. He'd already done this. He, well, actually, this is one of the, this is one of the difficulties of reading this, um, of reading the Old Testament is not all of these verses are chronological. So we don't know when this happened. Because uh, in chapter 3, it says, 
he brought the he brought Pharaoh's daughter into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord. So it's flashing forward a little bit. When did he marry her? We're not exactly sure. But early on in his reign, he married the daughter of Pharaoh, and he made an affinity with Pharaoh. In other words, he didn't want to go to war with Pharaoh, so he so he arranged a political marriage to to make the peace. And he thought this would be wise. And in fact, this was a common practice at the time among the countries round about. But what had God said? Number one, God had said, don't take yourself a woman from the countries, from the people round about you. Don't do it. This is one of the big commandments. Secondly, David charged Solomon with a very important duty. And here is Solomon breaking that duty. That duty was... Solomon, you've got to learn the law of Moses, and you've got to keep it. And to, to figure out exactly why I'm bringing that up, let's go to Deuteronomy 17.17. 17. And in that chapter, uh, it talks about what will happen if they ever, if the Israel, if the Israelites ever have a king. Um, in fact, let's go to Deuteronomy 17. We'll start in verse 14. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Now remember, Deuteronomy is Moses reviewing everything he's taught for 40 years. So this is his final teachings, and he's, and he's summing it all up, and he's saying, uh, here's, here's the actual record. You know, here, are the, here are the solid things you cannot do. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell, dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Notice right away, Moses is predicting the future that 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 is the attitude the Israelites will have, and that is, in fact, what happened. In verse 15, Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. In other words, Jews will be your king, somebody who, who worships the same God you do. And in verse 16, Here are commandments strictly for the king. This is something that Solomon should have known and probably did know. Deuteronomy 17, 16, But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. And it in fact talks about, later on in the book of First Kings, talks about how Solomon receives tributes from all over, and among those is horses, and he receives them from Egypt. But this isn't even what we're talking about. Verse 17. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And it shall be that when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book, out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life. So the king specifically... And, and, and this, is, this seems like a natural commandment, but you've got to remember in this time, uh, number one, literacy wasn't as widespread as we have it now. And number two, there was no printing press. So the king was specifically commanded that he had to make his own copy of the scriptures and then read the scriptures every day. And this would have been an extraordinary thing. Not every, it was a real luxury for someone to read the scriptures every day. This is, incidentally, this is one of the reasons why the... Ancient Hebrews used a lot of the literary techniques we talked about, especially parallelism, but chiasmus. They used these techniques because they were easier to remember when you heard them. Now, it is not an unheard of thing 
and it hasn't been for the centuries and the millennia that the Jews have existed, for, for those studying the Torah to memorize the entire Hebrew scriptures. Think about that. And that, by that, I mean the entire Old Testament. It is not unheard of for people to memorize the entire Old Testament. We don't really think of that as being possible these days, but it is. It is possible to memorize, and, and many, many, many Jews people have done it. Uh, and other people, but mostly mostly Jews studying to be rabbis, and mostly in the days before modern writing systems, modern uh, printing technology, they would memorize the scriptures and transmit them and transmit. And that was that was like what you did as a beginning rabbinical student. You would memorize the Hebrew scriptures, and then and then you had to memorize all of the oral traditions that went along with it. At what is called the Midrash, and also a lot of the, as much of the Talmud, which is 53 volumes, as you could. So, uh, this is a special, this chapter 17 of Deuteronomy is a special set of commandments just for the kings. You have to not go to Egypt for your horses. You have to not multiply wives to yourself. You have to not greatly multiply gold and silver. And you have to copy the scriptures and read them every day. So, before he took over as king, Solomon had been commanded by his father to learn the law of Moses and follow it. And here it is, right here in the law of Moses. One of the, one of the final things that Moses said, make sure that if you are the king, you do this. So he would have been very familiar with these scriptures. And right away, not right away, but some, sometime early in his reign, Solomon marries the daughter of Pharaoh. Now we don't know this, this happens before Solomon is humble. It happens before he has his story of wisdom with the two harlots. It happens before he constructs the temple, or at least the story of it is related before those things happened. But, the so this, this sort of weakness was planted in his heart early on, which was, here's this woman, you have, you have already trusted your own strength. Your wisdom says to you, make an alliance with Egypt. And it, and it does make sense. Egypt was a powerful... Egypt was very rarely conquered from outside. Egypt was a powerful empire for its entire history, and that's because it had such a strong economic base with the annual flooding of the Nile. They had dependable economic... They had dependable agriculture, and so they could always support people who could then support a military. And the, the lands round about them did not have that. That was one reason. And so he, it, was very, it made a lot of sense to make an alliance with Egypt. However, what God had said was different. He had said, I will fight your battles. So here is Solomon thinking, I'm going to be wise, and I'm going to secure my, for myself an alliance, an affinity with Pharaoh. However... It was against the express commandments of God. Number one, he'd said, don't multiply wives to yourself if you're the king. Number two, he'd said, don't marry any of the women who are not of the covenant because they will turn your hearts away from Jehovah. And that is what happened with Solomon. So we follow the story of Solomon, and there's no point in going too much into the details. Um, it's awful. He, it, The rest of the chapters... Um, are about him finishing the temple, finishing his, his house, description of the temple. 
We'll say a little bit about the Davidic covenant in a moment. But first, the end of the story of Solomon is, um, first of all, the Queen of Sheba even comes to Solomon, and that's a whole chapter. You know, she comes and she praises his greatness and his wisdom and his wealth and how happy all of his servants are. Basically, he is the shining sun. Solomon is the absolute height of civilization at that time. And it's because he started out so obedient. It's because the blessings of God are with him. That's what he forgets. So in chapter 11, that's chapter 10. And, and once again, these two chapters are put next to each other on purpose. So chapter 10, the Queen of Sheba visits and praises Solomon's wisdom, his grandeur. But nowhere does she say, and the righteousness. She does say, You're all, your God surely is the greatest God. But she doesn't say, you are righteous because I can tell that the way you're serving God. She just says, I can tell by your wealth that your God must be great. And chapter 11, once again, starts with this word. And in Hebrew, the word for but and and is a prefix. It's the same prefix. It's just one letter. So the translators have sort of chosen that that's what that's what this prefix means here. It could be and King Solomon loved many strange women, chapter eleven, verse one. But it but the way they translated it was but King Solomon loved many strange women. So all the stories of Solomon's prosperity and grandeur, but King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel. Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had seven hundred wives, princesses, and three hundred concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. It turned, uh, let's see, This the, I should read this verse. Verse 5, we'll skip one verse. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So not only did, was, Sol, was Solomon worshiping Ashtoreth, which is bad enough, but he even went after Milcom, which is another name for Moloch. Think about what it would have taken for Solomon to fall so far. He was indulging or at least turning a blind eye or condoning the practice of human sacrifice. This is why God gets so angry when the Israelites turn to idolatry. It's not a it's not a a trivial thing that they start worshiping these other gods because it's not a, it's not like people today where they say oh you know the idolatry in your heart you know you and I can have other gods before God and repent of it pretty easily oh my gosh I forgot you know in my vanity I was worshiping a nice car or a nice house or um, the the plaudits of men and I can sell that car, sell that house, or change my heart and repent pretty easily. This is different. These people are changing their whole society and, and a huge corrupting influence these, these idolatrous cultures are. And that's what Solomon was doing. And think about this. When the king does it, it basically says to everyone in the country, you can do it too. Idolatry was a a capital offense in the law of Moses. And yet here's the king condoning the practice. So that's about as bad as what King Noah, the wicked King Noah did is 
leading his people to do evil. And so if you think about all of the sins of King Noah in the Book of Mormon, what was it? He wanted, he basically wanted to overtax the people so that he could have a ton of wives and concubines. And his, and in order to teach the people that that was okay, he had to have all these priests. And in order for the priests to be on board, they had to have wives and concubines as well. And then they had to tax even more so that they could all be wealthy and and have wealth to lavish on their wives and concubines. They wanted to live this lifestyle of lust and of excess. And so they, it wasn't, they didn't have, in the time of King Noah of the Book of Mormon, they didn't have idolatrous civilizations about, around them other than, let's say, the, the Lamanites whom they had no congress with. But they, uh, they invented their own idolatry. And it was very similar to what Solomon is doing which is he's multiplying his wives and greatly multiplying his gold and silver. And so if you think about how terrible uh, Noah was, King Noah was, I mean, Noah, when, when Abinadi came in and prophesied about the wickedness of King Noah, what did King Noah do? He, he was angry, but he was, uh, Abinadi was so bold that King Noah was afraid and he was about to let him go. But then his priests made him angry and said, you know, he's reviled the king. And so then um, he did decree his, his death. Well, what Solomon is doing is actually worse because the only person that Noah sacrificed was Abinadi. But Solomon is not only engaging in the worship of Moloch, but we can presume influencing other people to worship Moloch. This is terrible. All right, so that's that's the pride of Solomon. Let's talk about um, the Davidic covenant briefly. So the Davidic covenant was the covenant that was made with David that, that said, so remember the Abrahamic covenant is you have the land of Israel, you have pros, uh, posterity that are as the stars in the sky or the sand in the sea, uh, sand on the on the beach, and then you have through your lineage shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. And that has several fulfillments, one of which was Christ will come from your lineage. So that's the Abrahamic covenant, but it's close to the Davidic covenant. So once again, God is making a covenant with someone who, through whose line Christ will come. And he says to David, there will never fail you a man on the throne of Israel. And that wasn't exactly true because the throne of Israel didn't continue forever. But it continued within the terms the Lord had set, you know, as long as you follow these things. And, and, and God was sincerely trying to help David have a line that would continue. And in fact, later in Solomon's life, God says to Solomon, uh, because you've done this, you'll be removed from your place. But for the sake of your father, David, and we can, we can guess what God means is for the sake of the covenant I made, for the sake of the Davidic covenant, um, I'll wait until you die and your son will be He'll have most of his his uh, kingdom stripped away from him. But that's the Davidic covenant, and it's reiterated to Solomon. And so once again, we have an example of how Solomon was given this. This we have two examples. One is in there, one is in uh, Chronicles, and one is in Kings. So again, the parallel accounts, and we can find an account of the Davidic covenant in. First Kings chapter 9, 
and it starts so uh, it starts with the right at the beginning of the chapter the lord in verse 2 the lord appeared to solomon the second time and here he and and this is after the dedicatory prayer which we'll talk about in a second but god says um basically the whole dedicatory prayer was about god please hear when israel prays to you please hear us and then he gives a bunch of situations in which god was asked to hear their prayers if they pray from the temple you know, if Israel is ever conquered in battle because they're disobedient. Well, when we pray, I guess we'll talk about it right now. <laughs> we'll talk about the dedicatory prayer. If we pray for um, st- renewed strength after we repent, if we come to this place and pray, or if we, d- if we have a drought because we've, been, we've turned away from God, then if we come back to this place and pray, hear us. And God comes to Solomon and says, I've heard your prayer, and yes, I will do everything you asked. And this this wonderful, at the end of the dedicatory prayer, the this wonderful glory, this cloud of glory. First of all, when they put the ark in the temple, this cloud of the, the I don't know the difference between the two clouds, but one cloud fills the temple that the priests had to leave, almost like a fog. And then after the dedicatory prayer, the, the presence of God is actually there, what's called the Shekinah. And... Um, this is the symbol that God has accepted the offering and God was in the temple forever after and after that time no one could go in there and and Solomon had you should read this dedicatory prayer which is given in chapter 8 um but then uh but then what the Lord says to Solomon is the the words of the Davidic covenant are so this is in First Kings chapter nine, the Davidic covenant, and it's re, uh, renewed in Second Chronicles chapter seven, or not renewed, but another another account. And it's basically this: you have to be perfect. To, you have to obey. You have to do what your father David said. You have to have a perfect heart, and you have to follow the law of Moses. You have to study the scriptures, and you have to worship me only. And if you will do this, I will always keep your line on the throne. And the the obvious extended fulfillment of that covenant is that through David's line would come the Messiah. But if you turn away from me, and this is the this is the condition under which um, the Davidic covenant could be broken, then I will remove you from your place, and I will always protect this temple. Unless you defile it. And a lot of times we as Latter-day Saints think, you know, if there was ever an earthquake, I'm sure God would protect the temple. Well, if you want to know whether he will, just read, uh, just read in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 7. Or we'll start in verse 6. If ye should all, shall at all turn from following me, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, Verse 7, then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them. And this house, which I have hallowed for my name, will I cast out of my sight. And Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people. And that's similar to Solomon himself is a byword. He's a byword for wisdom. And Israel will be a byword for people who have been destroyed and who suffer. And that is the, that is the truth. The Jews have been what is called in the scriptures a hiss and a byword. They have been tormented and oppressed and enslaved and driven forth. 
and it's well known that the, all those things happened. Um, I would so I would recommend if you are teaching this lesson, I would recommend for sure that you read the dedicatory prayer and compare it to the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple in in our dispensation because they're amazingly similar. But it's just such a humble prayer, and it's a wonderful spiritual prayer that Solomon offers. And he says, he just pleads with God, please hear our prayers when this happens and this happens and this happens, and we come here to the temple, hear our prayers. He prays for the people who aren't even Jews. If they come to the temple and pray, hear their prayers. And um, so now let's talk about, let's, let's finish by talking about what happened to Solomon. How did he go from being so strong to being so weak. First of all, I'm going to begin with a scripture that I don't care if I read every single podcast that we do, it would be worth it. Ether 12:27. And it starts out with men, if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. So let's talk about weakness. The weakness of Solomon, the foolishness of Solomon was that he had no weakness. And I don't mean that literally, but we don't have recorded in the scripture what his problem was. Solomon had everything. He had the blessings of God. He was the wisest person. And and this isn't said about any other person, let alone king, in the scriptures, that there was none like him before and none would come after him that would be as wise as he were. So he's the smartest person ever to live in all of Israel and perhaps ever. That should tell you something. First of all, intelligence does not get you to God. And um, as it says in the Book of Mormon, Book of, Mor- Book of Mormon, to be learned, when men are learned, they think they are wise. Well, Solomon was actually wise, and that didn't even help him. So the in Ether 12, 27, it says, If men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. And I just did a little research on what weakness does. So one of the one of the scriptures I found was, and I and in order for me to switch back and forth between all these pages would be a little too much work, but I encourage you to look up all these scriptures. Um, the first one was First Corinthians chapter twelve, verses twenty one to twenty four, and it talks about the different body parts and how um, the those parts of the body, and obviously the body of Christ is the church, and the body parts are the people in the church. And this is talking about how those body parts that have no honor, upon those we bestow more abundant honor. In other words, those people that you think don't, there might be people who are natural leaders and you look up to, for example, in your ward, you look up to the Relief Society president or the bishop. And those are the people that you're honored. But upon those that are not generally honored, upon those we bestow more abundant honor. In other words, God looks upon people that we don't think we need and he sees them as very necessary. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Now this, this is when Paul is given a thorn in, the, a thorn in the flesh, he calls it. And he prays unto God three times that God would remove this thorn in the flesh. And, and the answer is no. And finally, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Because I needed to give you this weakness because my strength is made perfect in weakness. And I think that's why God did not intervene in the reign of Solomon and put an end to it before Solomon died, because he wanted to show if he let strength, Solomon was the embodiment not only of 
wisdom, but of strength. If he let strength take its course, what would happen? So another example, and, and, and this is sort of uh, a point I've been wanting to make for a while, which is in Alma chapter 30, Alma turns around and, and addresses the multitude among the Zoramites that are humble. And he says, oh, because you've been compelled to be humble, you're willing to listen to me, and blessed are ye. But blessed are even more blessed are those who are not compelled to be humble, and yet are humble. In other words, people who hear the word of God and humble themselves immediately. And it occurred to me when I was reading that last, the last time I read it, that no one is compelled to be humble. That would be against the nature of the so he was speaking figuratively. That would be against the nature of the plan of salvation. It is true that no matter how much you suffer, you never have to choose to be humble. However, in order to be humble, it is a choice. So you can suffer until death and never humble yourself. That is possible. So what Alma meant wasn't, blessed are those who are compelled to be humble, what he means is, it, after you suffer, then it's better for you to humble yourself than to, than to continue obstinate. Finally, in Ether chapter 12, again, 10 verses later, in Ether 12, 37, God says to Ether, Ether is worried about his weakness. This, this whole discussion of weakness, come, or not Ether, uh, Moroni, in translating the book of Ether, he's, he's worried about his weakness in writing. And he's saying, you know, I'm, I, I can see when I write, when I, I know when I speak, I speak with the power of the Holy Ghost, but when I, I can see when I write that um, I have such weakness in writing. And God says, because, first of all, he says, if men come to, unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. And if they humble themselves and they come unto me, then, I, then my grace is sufficient for them. Similar to what he said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. But in verse 37 of Ether 12, God continues speaking to Moroni. He says, Because thou hast seen thy weakness, thou, you will be blessed because you've seen your own weakness. Now, in other words, God can show us our weaknesses, but that doesn't mean we have to see them. So when we see our weaknesses, now, Solomon definitely had weaknesses, but he didn't see them. Either he didn't come unto God and look for them, or he he was suffering pain, and he wasn't he it wasn't to the point where he was willing to choose to be humble, or he never had any pain, and it was a lesson from God to us that if things go well for you, that's actually a bad thing. Isn't that strange? What do we learn about? Let's let's contrast because, um, in all the scriptures. You can presume by what the scriptures say that there was no, never anyone as wise as Solomon except Jesus Christ. So let's contrast Solomon and Christ because they're obviously two pinnacles of wisdom. On the one hand, you have Solomon who said, give me an understanding heart. And God said, you'll be, you'll be unlike anyone before you or after you. And what does Solomon do? He starts trusting in his own wisdom and saying, I'm going to marry the daughter of Pharaoh rather than I'm going to let God fight my battles. I'm, I'm going to forget this verse. I'm going to obey all the commandments of God except the one that says, I shall, I shall not multiply my wives and multi greatly multiply my gold and silver and not go into Egypt. 
right? So he forgot that. And, I, and I'm going to forget the verse that says, I've got to make my own copy of the scriptures and I've got to read it every day. He obviously didn't do that. But what do we learn about Christ? Now, what do we learn about Christ's wisdom? First of all, there's that one verse where it says, God, Jesus Christ, uh, increased in wisdom and in stature in favor with God and man. So we knew that he learned things as he grew up, but it doesn't tell us a whole lot. The greatest insight into what Christ's learning process is in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 8. And they say that though he were a son, speaking of Christ, yet learned he obedience by the things he suffered. So as opposed to Christ is almost a direct opposition to Solomon. First of all, he's the king of kings. And so in his glory, he is, Solomon is a symbol of, of what God, what every Israelite wants God to be like. When they think of the Messiah, especially around the time of Christ, they are imagining a king like Solomon. And yet Christ shows up the exact opposite. And instead of learning by having God grant him his wisdom and being this understanding king who dazzles all the world with his greatness and glory. And the queen of Sheba comes and says, even your servants are blessed. Everyone around you is just amazingly blessed. Jesus says, or Jesus learns by the things he suffered. Though he were a son, yet learned he, and what does he learn? He doesn't learn wisdom. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things he suffered. Now, no one would deny that Christ is wiser than Solomon. In fact, Christ even testified to that. He said, Saul, uh, you, would, you would pay attention to the wisdom of Solomon, and yet a greater than Solomon is here. So Christ said of himself, there, I am greater than Solomon, which is undoubtedly true. But he didn't learn wisdom. What he learned was obedience. And what Solomon learned was disobedience. Solomon learned to trust his own wisdom. It's difficult to say exactly what this needs to mean in each of our lives, because obviously we need to be humble. But that's easier said than done. So what, what, what should we do to make sure that we maintain our humility? It, <clears throat> first of all, remember that you can be the wisest person in the world and that wisdom won't do you a bit of good. Think about what wisdom means in the kingdom of God. Right now, we think somebody is smart or wise if they have a good memory, right? They're able to recall things that are said to them or things they learn in their education. And that makes them smart. Or if they're able to read people like Solomon was, if they're able to understand others, if they're able to understand concepts of the natural world. Well, all of these things are basically people who have overcome to one degree or another the limitations of our mortal bodies. Our brains are hampered in the fact that we cannot focus on more than one thing at a time, unlike God, who can focus on an infinite number of things. We can forget, unlike God, who never can forget anything. We can fail to understand abstract ideas, unlike God, who understands every idea. And when we depart this life, we will very, very quickly realize 
that there are no smart and dumb people in the kingdom of God. In fact, I don't even think there are smart and dumb people in the lesser kingdoms. We are immediately released from the, when we die, we're immediately released from the limitations of our mortal brain. And I imagine that we that we figure out, oh my gosh, I can I can see all of my life in this clarity that I never would have imagined before. And then we'll realize what I thought was intelligence was nothing. So the intelligence that we have, the wealth that we have, the strength that we have, all of these are actually weaknesses. And the weakness that we have, anything that brings us to humility is actually strength. That's what God means when he says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And I encourage you, here's a challenge for everyone. And I hope that you will write to me and give me uh, your experiences with this challenge. And that is, do a, do a search in your Gospel Library app, either the word weakness or weak, and find out how many of those results across all of the standard works, how many of those results for the word weak are followed by God saying, I'm going to make this strong, or your weakness is good, or the, something about the weakness being a benefit. Now, a lot of times the word weak is used to describe, you know, the the Nephites were weak like unto the Lamanites, so it's not really spiritual weakness. But just about every time you see weakness, it's actually used as an analog or a synonym for humility, and God calls it strength. And in fact, uh, in the Book of Mormon, it's actually described as a strength. They drew, they grew strong in their humility. It's not like it's not something that you'd normally think of as a strength. So I believe that's, that God allowed Solomon to ripen in his iniquity precisely to teach us that lesson so that we could never forget it, which is our wisdom does not matter. How smart we are, how rich we are does not matter. How many people win the lottery? And then this is a statistic that's well known. Almost everyone who whose life whose life circumstances, whose whose quality of life is changed by winning the lottery, are miserable within five years. And so our, our, our richness, our, our riches, our wisdom, our intelligence, our own power, physical strength, none of those things matter. It doesn't do us any good where God is concerned. What does us good is when we see, as God told Moroni in the book of Ether, when we see our weakness. This is the true strength, and this is the lesson of Solomon. So if you want the wisdom of Solomon, then, first of all, Solomon did not pray for a bad thing. He prayed for an understanding heart. What a wonderful blessing that would be for all of us. But if you want the true wisdom of Solomon, it's then you'll learn the lesson of the story of Solomon, which is this. God's strength is made perfect in weakness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 